0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on this show, we'll have our latest Asia 360 segment. We'll look at a possibly overlooked but critically important bilateral relationship for Canada within the CPTPP multilateral framework and coming up First, I'll speak to the executive director of the Vancouver International Wine Festival, all about the festival which takes place this Saturday through to March 3rd. Coming up on Thursday, February 28th, one-third of BC's population is nearing the age of 50, and 17% of our population has already achieved senior status. These facts mean an unprecedented shift it will have drastic economic and social implications for the province. With the help of our experts, the BIV Retirement Ready panel discussion will navigate how and when to retire and how to embrace what should be the triumphant years of a long, wealthy, healthy, happy life. The event is at the Shangri-La Hotel. More information is available at biv.com slash events. You're listening to BIV today. The Vancouver International Wine Festival gets underway this Saturday. Over the course of a week, the festival will host 54 events, feature 160 wineries, and showcase some 1,450 wines. Harry Hercheg is the executive director of the festival. He joins me now. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Nice to be here. And when I hear those numbers, the first thing I think of is, I better stay out of the way. (laughs)
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, are you going to be able to make it to all 54 events? Because it's not just in one location. They're all throughout the city.
1: We sometimes have eight dinners at a time and multiple seminars. There was a year, several years ago, that I did make it to every event, tweeted from every event. Wow. And uh, I don't I do not do that anymore. I try to take a more <laughs> measured, calm, balanced approach.
0: For your own sanity. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to see. Tell me what's new and what's different about this year's festival.
1: Well, what's new and different you know, is constantly the same. When you think back, Uh, 40 years ago today, I mean, there's people 40 years ago today, that are over 40 and there's people 40 years ago that weren't even (laughs) born yet. But 40 years ago today was the first wine festival. Wow. And on February 20th and 21st, 1979, just one winery, Robert Mondavi Winery was the participating winery. We organized a tasting, two tastings on each night for about a thousand people at uh, Highcroft. And, um, From that, we built relationships from that one winery with our attendees, with the trade, with the community. And over 40 years, we we now have those 160 wineries and the the 1450 wines and 40,000 bottles that have to be shipped here from around the world. The logistics of that is amazing because the wines don't come from stores. They come from the wineries that make those wines and the owners and the winemakers, it's one of our requirements has to come to the festival and pour their wine for you. So one of the things that's constantly evolving is that the wineries are new. We have a quarter of the wineries of the festival are new, never been to the festival. We're hosting media and sommeliers from across Canada and down uh, the coast of uh, the West coast who've never even been to Vancouver before. So it's really so exciting to be able to taste so many new wines, meet so many new people, through a wine festival. It's very exciting. It, it kind of uh, also scares me. Did you mention that we have to organize <laughs> how many <laughs> events? I better get on more it.
0: Events. And 40,000 bottles. That That is a logistics nightmare, I would say. But for you, maybe that's just another day. In the well, business. there
1: are strikes sometimes in ports, um, shipping wines from Nova Scotia to here across Canada. You notice how cold it was, an Arctic vortex. Right. Like, it just gripped everywhere all the way from, like, the North Pole (laughs) down to Phoenix. And uh, so, um, you know, the wines have to get here in good shape. And um, about 30,000 bottles get opened and another 10,000 bottles are sold through the on-site BC liquor store. So Because Mm -hmm. any wines you get to taste in the International Festival Tasting Room, which is the big hall that has all the wineries, Any wines you taste, if you like them, you can buy those wines on the on-site store. An amazing thing is if you come here from Vancouver Island or Okanagan Valley or up north, spend the weekend here, you can bring back one, two, or bottles or three or four cases and the BC liquor stores will ship your wines free of charge to your local liquor store. So you can come to the festival, taste wines, buy them, leave hands free. It's it's a it's a great time. That's why I've been to every festival since nineteen (laughs) eighty seven.
0: Well going back to nineteen seventy nine, you said you had a thousand people come out. Who were those participants versus who are the people who are going to walk through the doors of all of the events you have this coming week?
1: It was started by a theater company The Vancouver Playhouse Theatre Company and a board member, John Levine, who said, oh, let's do we have to have another bake sale or car wash? We need to find another way to raise money. And he came up with this idea, collaborating with other people and his connections with Robert Mondavi Winery. Hey, why don't I try, why don't we try a wine tasting and see if we can raise some money? The tickets, because I I got the poster uh, and we posted it on uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter yesterday. It says, in praise of wine, the ticket price is $20, but groups of uh, 10 was $15 each, and 60% of it was a tax receipt. So you get a tax receipt for $12.
0: <laughs> That's the selling feature right there.
1: <laughs> and, and someone did a calculation and said, oh, you know what? A $20 seminar in 1979 is worth about uh, 65 to $70 now, which is the oh. price of our seminars now. Generally. There you
0: go. So, who you mentioned before we went on the air that you, people from around the world are coming. You're not just featuring wineries from around the world, but people from out of town are coming to this festival. What do you think their expectations are? Are they looking to buy wine? Are they looking to see what BC has to offer? Are they just coming because this is the place to be?
1: There's so many different segments. So, if you're uh, from the trade, uh, if you're a media person, you're going to write about wine uh, to share it with your with your readers or listeners or viewers. If you are sommelier, you're here to figure out uh, what's going on in the wine world, exciting wines to put on your wine list. If you're a retailer, uh, we have uh, retailers from Ontario, from the Liquor Control Board of Ontario coming, uh, retailers from Alberta. So they're here to network with the wine industry. If someone is from the, uh, coming here from the Okanagan or up from Seattle, they're just here for a good time. So part of what they want is they want to have a great weekend, go to the great restaurants that are around town, We're centered around the Vancouver Convention Center. So, you know, there's lots of great places to uh, eat and drink. So the reason we have so many people attend, 25,000 people at these 54 events, is because there's so many types of different people and different kinds of ways to enjoy wine, whether it's a lunch or dinner or a tasting or education or you're there for business. There's so many different aspects to it.
0: A little bit of something for everyone. And what about for the wineries? What's their compelling reason to participate in a festival like this?
1: Well, we sell a lot of wine on the on-site uh, <laughs> liquor store, over a half a million dollars. Right. And it's, uh, it's a marketing expense for them. And there's just something about the wine world. Sampling is a very important part of how they market their wines. And these wineries go to trade shows around the world, uh, such as Pro Wine in Germany or Vin Expo in France or Vin Italy. And those wine shows, some of the largest wine shows, don't allow the public in. Hmm. It's trade only. And some of the larger shows in in the States don't have a trade component. So one of the unique things about the Vancouver International Wine Festival is we have a strong public component and a strong trade component. So if you're a producer coming here, this beautiful city of Vancouver, and you get to network with the trade to see what they think of their wine, and then the public also come to the sessions, so it's almost like a focus group. So for them, they get a, a sense of the pulse of what their wine is doing Um, in our market and Vancouver has been a leading market for 40 years for wine because we're a port city and California is our theme this year. One of the reasons we started with Robert Mondavi and have a strong relationship with California is that Vancouver is the largest city closest to California. So Vancouver has been the first export market for California wines going back decades. Wow. So if you're in the Ontario market or Quebec market, uh, the categories are mainly dominant by French and Italian wines. But one of the unique aspects of our market is how equal all the wine countries and wine regions are. Whether your wines come from France or Italy or Chile or Australia or California or New Zealand, they all have relatively equal market shares. So that's one of the reasons you get this excitement from 16 countries battling for market share <laughs> in Vancouver <laughs> at the end of February every year.
0: <laughs> that's very exciting. Now I and tell me what your perspective is on this, but BC wasn't always on the world wine map. We were maybe known as a distributor, as a port for wines from say, jurisdictions like California, but we've really come into our own as a place that's celebrated for having our own wines. Is there a connection there with the festival? Has the festival in any way helped put BC and maybe Canadian wines on the map?
1: I think an an important aspect of our festival for BC wineries is that we are the closest international festival to the Okanagan and it's an opportunity for Okanagan wineries and Cowichan Valley wineries and others from BC to participate in an international festival. Mm. So they get a sense of what it's like to compete with the world. When we started uh, building the festival in the eighties and some BC wineries came on board, there wasn't that many wineries around. I mean, now we have 27 uh, BC wineries at this year's festival. Um, the biggest component of course is california being the theme this year at 53 when we celebrated uh, canada's 150th birthday 2 years ago we had 80 wineries from across canada but it's a great opportunity for them to to test the waters in an in an international aspect and because we have buyers and media coming from across canada it's, it gets a chance uh, it's a very efficient way for them to to connect with people and see get a pulse of what their wines are like i think one of the great untapped opportunities for BC wineries is we often think about export to China or the US or UK but one of the I think opportunities is for BC wineries to export to the rest of Canada as difficult Mm -hmm. as it is with our legal system and uh, how cold it is in the wintertime but when I spent some time in uh, in Winnipeg one of the things the people there said you know BC wines are our wines Mm -hmm. like Canadian wines is something that all Canadians should have a chance to be able to enjoy. And, and it's not just our British Columbian wines. It's our Canadian wines. And we should uh, um, be able to drink Canadian wines across Canada. It's one of the sort of untapped things that, that motivates me to try to bring as many sommeliers and media from Ontario and Quebec and Atlanta, Canada here because so they can taste British Columbia wines because it's not that easy to ship across Canada. We, as a country, we tend to import and export with other countries, not so much with ourselves.
0: Yeah, interprovincial trade can be a huge barrier in, in sectors like I wine.
1: Think, <laughs> I think the definition of interprovincial trade is it's a barrier, Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, do you then get a lot of potential buyers from, say, Manitoba coming to the festival saying, you know what, we maybe didn't stock these BC wines, but we're going to? or Do you have those kinds of partnerships forming?
1: Yes, we, we, uh, we do have some of the buyers coming here. Uh, some of the provinces, you can order wines direct from British Columbia, such as Nova Scotia, I believe, Manitoba as well. Um, so by coming here, you can uh, connect with the, with the wineries, and a lot of them are very motivated to export their product. It's, you know, it's a sense of pride. It's not that they have too much product they don't know what to do with. But I guess if you, you know, if you make wine, you want people to enjoy it uh, locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. It's it's It seems something that, that's why a lot of the producers, whether they're from Europe or Southern Hemisphere, also come to Vancouver because it's part of their lifestyle. It's part of how they, they market wines. You have to be in the markets if you want to sell the wine. You can't just sell it to the market. You have them be in the market to sell your wine. and So I think that's one of the exciting things about the wine world is that regardless of all the technological change and in social media, you still have to taste the wine live and in person.
0: Mm. And I wonder then the fact that so many of your events are open to the public, unlike other international festivals. One of the best testaments to a wine could be a consumer in another province asking specifically for that wine that might get the the wheels turning in the minds of buyers and restaurateurs.
1: You can buy a case right then and there at, at the table and have it uh, delivered. Or that, yeah. And um, an important part of our festival also is, uh, is uh, as a nonprofit society, we also raise funds for our designated charity, barton on the Beach Shakespeare Festival. And uh, we kick off the festival this Saturday with the Bacchanalia Gala Dinner and Auction. So um, there's many different business aspects, mm-hmm. from, from wine auctions to dinners and lunches and on-site stores and... Uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing, it's been an amazing 40 years.
0: And you said you're not going to try and get to all 54 events, but what are some of the one or two events that you're really looking forward to?
1: Our keynote speaker this year is John Bonnet, and uh, he's one of the leading voices in wine. He just finished a, a book recently, The New Wine Rules and, and The New California Wine, and he's our keynote speaker, and he's going to do a talk about Lessons from California, like things they could have done better, or 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 things they have to learn, and how we can learn in British Columbia uh, of what's happened in California over the last couple of decades. Mm. And uh, it's going to be at the Convention Center next Wednesday at twelve noon, and that's uh, February twenty seventh. And uh, very fascinating. I think that's going to be a very fascinating discussion. And before that, in the morning, we're doing a wine industry symposium uh, with John Bonnet and some leading voices on Canada's place in key markets in the world to help uh, our winemakers and our industry people try to understand um, how to export and what are the key markets, whether it's London, UK or Hong Kong or perhaps perhaps Scandinavia because they still have liquor monopolies. Hmm. So next Wednesday for for business people who want to learn more about wine, that symposium on Wednesday morning starting at 9.30 on on Canada's uh, place in key markets and then lessons from California with our keynote speaker I think it's it's I think people will be amazed about uh um, the kind of insights that uh, the people that we're bringing on the panels will have that they will share with uh with attendees.
0: Both of those sound really fascinating. Of course, people can go to vanwinefest.ca for more information, or it sounds like maybe follow you on Twitter because you'll be tweeting <laughs>
1: everything I will. is. I've been retweeting. <laughs> I know that's a little bit lazy, but starting on Saturday when the festival starts, I'm going to be doing some live tweets. Original absolutely. content. Original content. <laughs> just like this.
0: Perfect. Harry, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Harry Hercheg is the executive director of the Vancouver International Wine Festival, kicking off on Saturday, which runs a week through to March 3rd. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. Today, we're looking at a potentially really important bilateral opportunity within the multilateral CPTPP framework. Joining me for that discussion is Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Thanks for coming in.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And of course, what we're talking about is Canada's relationship with Japan. Tell me a bit about why this deserves maybe more attention than what it's received to date.
2: Sure. Uh, so on the 11th, uh, my uh, my foundation, together with uh, Global Affairs Canada and the Trade Commissioner Service, helped launch a basically a public campaign to inform uh, Canadian small and medium sized enterprises about the CPTPP. Uh, what I found in that discussion was... Uh, a a reoccurring theme of the importance of Japan in this larger uh, multilateral free trade agreement that I think is probably overlooked in a lot of discussions that we have about Canada's engagement with Asia, simply because Japan tends to be dwarfed by discussions about opportunities in the the Chinese market, for example, and increasingly discussions about um, the potential of India. But that Canada-Japan relationship is not only incredibly important as it now stands, but has huge amounts of potential under this uh, CPTPP to become even more important for Canada.
0: Tell you about where some of those opportunities are. What sectors are we talking about?
2: Sure. Uh, just keep in mind, again, that Japan is the world's third largest economy. Right now, it is Canada's uh, largest source of foreign direct investment from Asia. This is a market with uh, almost um, 130 million people. Uh, it has a, a GDP of about $6.3 trillion. Uh, there's huge amounts of, uh, of opportunity for Canadian firms to enter manufacturing, to enter um, service agreements with, with Japan. And particularly under the CPTPP, what we're going to see is a massive trade, uh, excuse me, tariff elimination across uh, certain industries and also removal of non-tariff barriers for entry into the Japanese market.
0: I imagine that's going to be very, very big when it comes to certain commodities and agricultural products.
2: Oh, absolutely. So I I think you can think, for example, uh, if you use the example of canola oil. Right now, we have uh, tariffs on canola oil of about 13 yen for every kilogram. That's going to be eliminated within five years. We're going to see similar things around uh, fish and seafood. Uh, Snow crab, lobster, salmon, all of which have tariffs up to about 5%, are going to see either a complete elimination of tariffs upon entry of the deal or phased over a a period of between 5 and 15 years. Mm. I think very, very significantly are opportunities for Canadian beef and Canadian pork to enter into the Japanese market. Right now, Canadian beef have tariffs up to almost 40%. Wow. uh, and over 15 years, those will drop down to 9%. And you see similar things with, with pork exports opportunities. So huge amount of, of potential there.
0: When it comes to these kinds of products that we're talking about on the agricultural side, it's a two-way relationship. Can we expect maybe some competition from Japanese companies?
2: Uh, there are going to be, uh, of course, as, as you expand trade relationships, there are complementaries within economies that will have to be dealt with. But in, for example, the auto sector, uh, Japan and, and Canada have come to an agreement within the CPTPP uh, to uh, eliminate non-tariff barriers on, on relations between autos, but Canada has actually reserved the right within the CPTPP to, uh, to institute a transitional period where if there's too much uh, uh, increase in, in imports of autos from Japan, Canada can actually step up and ask those to be decreased or ask mm-hmm. for some mitigation.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, um, We've spoken about on this show before about opportunities for small and medium-sized businesses, too. And in an agreement like this, it can seem almost overwhelming. There are a lot of different economies to look at. You mentioned some of the economic numbers tied to an economy like Japan. Right. They're huge. Realistically, for, say, smaller companies, what are some of the areas of opportunity for them in this new market?
2: Well... As Japan moves from a more kind of export driven approach to its growth model uh, towards one based more on domestic consumption, I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for small and medium sized enterprises to enter that market. Mm. J- Japanese tastes tend to, uh, consumer tastes tend to swing towards more individual brands and individual um, uh, products. We have a, a great survey out at the the foundation on the e-commerce market in Japan right now. And one of the good examples that we found is a producer here in Canada of fishing poles was actually able to enter the Japanese market at a very, very high rate of uh, return on his own product. So he's making about 13 fishing poles a year. Those enter the Japanese market and essentially he has a five-year waiting period only for Japanese consumers of his product that allow him to be basically a small artisan living here in in BC and shipping his goods over to Japan. Mm. So huge amounts of opportunity for that kind of of production and that kind of consumption uh, in Japan.
0: And I suppose then that speaks to, when we talk about these 2.0 kinds of trade agreements that look at digital trade, the importance of having the technological infrastructure to say market and a business that sells 13 of something. Oh,
2: absolutely. And and Japan has a very very robust e commerce section uh, e commerce sector uh, that could allow that greater integration of uh, small and medium sized enterprises from Canada into the Japanese market.
0: Looking at the CPTPP again as a multilateral framework, is it correct to maybe think of it as having partner economies within that to help companies access? another partner economy. So I'm thinking maybe Canadian companies working with Japanese counterparts to benefit from opportunities in Vietnam.
2: So that's a really interesting question and I think it's one that Canada should explore more. There's a huge amount of, I think the last time we spoke, huge uh, we talked about these these public opinions in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. And Japan is seen as a, a really trustworthy partner in different parts of Asia. Now if Canada and Canadian firms were able to engage with Japanese counterparts to enter second or, or, or tertiary markets, I think that would be hugely advantageous. And within the CPTP framework, those uh, 10 economies plus Canada that are engaged, there's going to be a 99% overall elimination of tariffs for trade and services going between those, those different economies. So there's a huge amount of opportunity, again, for Canada to cooperate with Japan to enter the broader uh, Asian market.
0: Where do you think the biggest opportunities are for Japan in this framework?
2: Uh, for Japan, there's, there's a huge amount of opportunity to increase its imports of Canadian timber, mm. uh, to increase its uh, imports of Canadian agriculture and agri-food, like, uh, like fish, uh, in particular, that, that's a, a good opportunity.
0: Of course, when the, the negotiations first began, the U.S. was part of this multilateral agreement. That was going to be a big opportunity for many Asian economies. Yeah. The U.S. is now out of it, which means interesting opportunities for economies like Canada oh, and absolutely. Australia. Uh, I'm curious, are we priority one for Japan in this agreement or is Japan maybe looking to other economies first?
2: I think that um, engagement with the CPTPP is part of Japan's overall multilateral approach to building relations, not only in in Asia, but within the broader global community. So Japan and the European Union just signed an economic partnership agreement. Uh, Japan's also looking at the potential of joining the uh, um, RCEP, which is another Asia-focused multilateral economic engagement uh, institution. It's... Overall, foreign policy is predicated on engagement. So Canada is an important part of that, to be sure. But we also have to be realistic that Canada is a a small market in terms of its population and its size. There are other significant markets in the Asia-Pacific that Japan will be looking to integrate in. Uh, But that doesn't mean that Japan and Canada can't have a very healthy, robust economic relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. And are we potentially a point of access for Japanese firms and consumers to the U.S.?
2: I think uh, there's certainly that opportunity, but Japan and the United States also have robust economic relations. uh, And I think what the way that we should think about it from a Canadian perspective is not serving as an entry point to the the US market, but maximizing on what Canada has and the value add that Canada can bring to things like manufacturing and services to make sure that the Canadian-Japanese bilateral relationship is serving Canadian national interests.
0: From an investor point of view in Japan, where do you think some of the, the key opportunities are in our market for someone maybe looking to invest in either companies or real estate or other opportunities?
2: Well, there's a huge opportunity for cooperation between Japanese and Canadian tech industries. Mm. Uh, Japan being one of the more innovative countries in the Asia Pacific, uh, they have huge amounts of, of high technology industry that, that we can actually work with Research and development, tech research and development is a priority of both the Japanese and the Canadian governments. Um, university-university exchange is, is a, has huge potential between, um, the two countries and that's i think in particular something that we should look at when we think about developing a asia strategy around the canadian uh, supercluster initiatives mm-hmm. and and looking for opportunities in asia for the canadian superclusters the tech superclusters to go over and find opportunities in uh, incubators and uh, and accelerator kind of opportunities in japan
0: this may be more of a, an operational type question but for say businesses here looking for opportunities within the cptpp what is kind of the best way to approach that? Should they be looking at one specific country and opportunities and then branching out? Should they be looking at the region as a whole? What seems to work best and what have you heard?
2: I think, of course, each, each company will have the industry that they're targeting. Um, the first thing you can do is uh, do just a general kind of survey of, of what opportunities exist in the broader CPTPP framework within the different countries. We actually at the foundation have a, um, an investment monitor that shows where Canadian firms have put their money in Asia, uh, where they're moving, what partners they have on the ground, uh, what kind of industries they're entering in. So those kind of resources can serve uh, small and medium-sized enterprises in Canada very well. They can see where other firms have gone, think about the successes and failures that they've had in entering those markets. And then for more um, kind of granular and tactical level information, they can always reach out to their trade commissioner in the country for more information or uh, there's a huge network within uh, Global Affairs Canada also that provides that kind of business intelligence uh, information that that they can use to to think about their market entry strategy and to make sure that they're entering uh, a place with good regulations that will best protect their interests.
0: We've seen a number of Japanese retailers find quite a great level of success in the greater Vancouver region here. Is that something we can maybe expect more of, consumer interest-tasted brands from Japan making their way into the Canadian market?
2: That would certainly be something that Japan would want. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, there is a desire for that kind of, uh, um, those kind of merchandise coming in, into Canada. I think there's a growing awareness of, of brand awareness. Uh, and I think Japan will be able to expand that through its cooperation with the CTPPP.
0: Jeff, as always, good to have you on the program. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of all of our new episodes by subscribing to the show on iTunes or on Stitcher. And of course, you can listen to all of our episodes at BIV.com, which is your go-to source for more business news across platforms. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.